some of you know, um, back when I was much younger, I was a missionary in China. I lived in a city called Chongqing. It sounds like a made-up name. It's a real, real place. Home to uh, 30 million, now 34 million people. And when I was living in Chongqing, the development in the city, the rate of development was incredibly fast. Uh, Beijing, the central government, had decided to make Chongqing a municipality, which means that it was under the direct control of the central government. And so they were putting tons of investment into the city of Chongqing to modernize it, to make it a modern city in western China. And what that meant was that there were buildings being built literally everywhere you looked. Every block that you walked down, everywhere you went, there was a 30-plus story high-rise going up in Chongqing. And I mean, which means that you could drive in Chongqing, if you were there today, you could drive for two hours in Chongqing. You could drive for, uh, you could drive for two hours and everywhere you would look, all around you, you could, you could see at least 10,000 buildings over 30 stories tall, everywhere you went in every direction. It actually, I flew one time from Chongqing, flew into New York City, and it makes New York look small. It's an incredibly large city full of people full of the image of God. Well, one of the buildings that they were building, they were building right next door. I'm talking about next door to where I lived. And in the foreign dormitory I was living in, where I would sleep, there was a building. Like, I'm sleeping here, there's a wall, and on the other side of the wall, they were building a massive high-rise building. It was, it was kind of ridiculous, and they would build all night. It was incredibly hard to sleep. And one night, they fired up the concrete a mixer, this is an industrial mixer. I don't know anything about industrial mixers, but I do, do now. They are so loud. It was so loud that I literally jumped out of bed, from the deep sleep, out of bed onto my feet in one move. I didn't know what was going on. It was so incredible. Actually, that happened to me this morning. Very different type of a situation. But the police knocked on my door at 6 a.m. this morning. Rapping on the door, my dog is going crazy. This is the, the probably the, the it's been 20 years since I've had this experience, so here I am telling the story. And uh, Josh had picked up a phone on the side of the road, an iPhone that turned out to be a police officer's phone, and they were wondering where the phone was. And so I don't know why they needed to get that phone back at 6 a.m., but they did. So uh, that's when I woke up this morning. Um, but anyway, previously to that, the last time I had that experience that I can remember, that kind of like, what is going on? was when they fired up the concrete mixer next to me. I got to be fairly good friends with these guys that were working on the building next to me, and I could just open my window and hand them a cup of water. That's how close they were. And so I was having a conversation with them one day, and I asked them, um, I'm curious what kind of a building you're building here. What's it going to be in the end? Ujrida was the answer, which means I don't know. I don't know. I'm just here to do my job. I'm just here to, to do my trade. I'm here to do whatever it is that I'm doing. I'm like, you mean to tell me you're working on this building project and you have no idea what the end goal is? I mean, I'm kind of curious. Is there going to be a restaurant here on the bottom floor? Are there going to be classrooms? Are there going to be other dormitories? Don't know. Don't know the answer. It's actually fairly common in China. Maybe it's common in the U.S. I don't think so. But in China, that you hire these trades and they come in and do their job and they don't, they're not part of a larger project. Well, fortunately for us in the kingdom of God, that's not what it's like for us. God has told us what he is doing. He has told us the kind of building 
that he is building in the kingdom of God. Yes, there is some mystery still left for us. We don't know all the answers, but we do know some things. We know that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. We know that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the building. We know that the way that this building is built, we know that what God is doing and the way that we are contributing to that cause is through the spread of the word of God from generation to generation. You know, you don't have to, if you, as you're working on God's building, you don't have to have the answer, I don't know. We can know what our purpose is. Yes, each and every one of us has maybe a slightly unique purpose. But it's not up to us to make up our purpose in life. Our, our culture will tell us that you are supposed to figure out, reach down deep inside and figure out why you're alive, what your purpose is. Or others will tell you, friends, others will tell you that your purpose should be this. It should be to be popular. It should be to be successful. It should be to have really smart kids who go to Ivy League schools. It should be to make a lot of money. It should be to be comfortable. There's all kinds of different answers that the world will tell you for that question. But our answer is told to us by Jesus Christ. He calls us into great commission to make disciples of all the nations by spreading the word of God. That is every single one of our purpose in life in the church. And in this passage, what we find today in 2 Kings 2 is we find the importance of God's word going from generation to generation. The importance of men and women aligning themselves with God and his purposes in their lives to extend the word of God into the next generation. That's what we find here in the passage today. It's actually a really interesting passage because it tells us in verse 1 what is going to happen to Elijah. I mean, if that's not intentional, then it's just really bad writing. He takes all the mystery out of it from the very beginning. He tells us, hey, Elijah's going to be taken to heaven in a whirlwind. And then there's all this story. And then sure enough, he is taken to heaven in a whirlwind. And I believe the reason for that is this, that the focus actually of this passage, even though this is an incredible story, and we'll talk about the, the chariots of fire in just a minute, even though this is an incredible story, Elijah going to heaven in a fiery chariot is actually not the main point of the story. The main point of the story is Elisha. It is that God's word is going to continue to come to Israel in a faithless age through a prophet. God is not going to leave his people without his word in any generation. And it's important for us to join the Lord in extending the gospel beyond us into the next generation as well. So as we seek to follow the Lord in his kingdom building project, we learn here in this story that we should move forward by keeping the end in sight, by focusing on the next generation, and by giving supreme value to the spoken word of God. By keeping the end in sight, focusing on the next generation, and giving supreme value to God's word. Let me pray for us. God, I pray uh, today that you would give us ears to hear your word. Father, there's all kinds of things that could distract us from that. I pray that that would not happen. I pray that we would listen to you. Father, I pray for myself as I'm still recovering and don't have full energy that you would speak through me as I seek to preach your word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's talk about moving forward with the end in sight. So, Elijah knew that his hour was coming. 
He knew, he didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but he knew that his earthly days were going to end. And he knew that in the end he would end up in heaven. He didn't know exactly how that was going to happen yet. We also know that our earthly days will end and we will end up in heaven. So we can also live with the end inside. And Elijah and Elisha show us how to do that. How do we approach death well? First of all, Elijah follows the Lord until his final hour. He does not give up. He does not stop. Until the final hour of his life, Elijah is following the Lord. And we too need to follow the Lord until our final hour. There are few things more sad than someone in their older age losing heart and wandering away from the faith. We do see it happen. We do see it happen. But Elijah shows us that we can be faithful to the end. Elijah also, in his old age, does not want to be a burden to Elisha or to the others, which is a kind sentiment, uh, but that's not something that Elisha goes along with. Elisha shows us how to walk with people well as they begin to, to approach the end of their earthly days. Elisha is unwilling to part with Elijah, even though Elijah, it seems, at the end of his life, wasn't the easiest person to be around. He may seem even a little grumpy in this passage, um, but that's okay. Elisha continues to stick with him, as do the 50 other prophets. So look at Elisha's care for Elijah here. First of all, he respects Elijah. He calls Elijah in verse 12 his father in the faith. He does not lose respect for Elijah. He, second of all, he loves Elijah. When Elijah does depart, there is grief. There is a tearing of the robes, which is an ancient Near Eastern way of, of showing that you're extremely upset, that you're grieving. He loves Elijah. And he learns from Elijah. All the way to the very end, Elisha is seeking to spend time with Elijah because he loves him, he respects him, but also he wants to learn everything he can from Elijah until the end. And we need to continue to learn from our fathers and mothers in the faith as they approach the end of their lives. So in the final moments of life, we need to make sure we're living with the end in sight. And remember, your actual end is not the end of your earthly life. If you are a Christian, the end of your life is only of your earthly life is only the real beginning of your life because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has died for you, forgiven your sins, he has been raised for you, he's been raised from the dead, then you can keep the resurrection, and you must keep the resurrection in mind as you approach death, as your loved ones approach death. You must continue to understand that this is not the end if your loved one is in Christ, that this is only the beginning. This is only the real beginning of their life. Neither Elijah or Elisha are fearing death. Elijah is not afraid to die. He's not afraid to die. Elisha is not afraid that Elijah will die, but he's a, you can tell he's a little bit apprehensive in this passage. That's what I read. He's a little bit apprehensive because he knows he's going to be carrying Elijah's cloak. He's going to be the next one. And that should humble us so much if we're the next generation. If we're the next woman or man up to carry the cloak, 
then we need to be humble in that moment. We need to keep the resurrection in view, and we need to learn all we can. Listen, no one in this room is getting any younger, right? No one. But some of us are getting older. And I encourage you, if you're getting older, if you're elderly and you're, you're approaching maybe your final decade or maybe your final years, I would encourage you to continue to live with the end in sight. Don't give up on your faith. Remember the resurrection is true. Think about the resurrection often. If you have loved ones in your life, relish your time with them. Respect them. Learn from them. So that you'll be ready to carry the mantle forward in the next generation. The second point this morning is that we just move forward by keeping the end in sight, but also we move forward with the next generation. And so in verse 6, starting there, it begins to uh, read in a very Moses and Red Sea-like way. Elijah, to cross the Jordan River, he takes out his cloak and he rolls it up, and he strikes the water, in contrast to Moses, who raises up his staff over the Red Sea and the waters part. But this is supposed to evoke uh, remembrance in Israel of those Moses and Joshua years. The same cloak is the same cloak that he touched the water with that he put over Elisha to ordain him in 1 Kings 19. And so the prominence of the cloak in this passage, it comes back and forth. It, it means that there is a succession plan and that the cloak is a marker of that in some way. So the waters of the Jordan miraculously part, but only Elijah and Elisha cross together. We also hear, remember Joshua chapter 3, with the crossing of the Jordan, where Joshua has his own miraculous Jordan crossing moment, where uh, the Ark of the Covenant goes into the Jordan River and the waters part, and the people walk across it. So what we're supposed to be understanding here is that like Moses parted the Red Sea, like Joshua parted the Jordan River, now Elijah is parting the Jordan River, and then later in the passage, Elisha, his successor, will also part the waters and go backwards across the waters. We need to understand that what we're reading here is about the fact that when God raises up a leader, Moses gives way to Joshua. Elijah gives way to Elisha. This is the pattern of redemptive history. There is a forward movement of the gospel that is always happening. In redemptive history. So these men crossed the Jordan and arrived very near to the place where Moses died. Did you know that we don't know where Moses died exactly when it was near Mount Nebo? We don't know where it was. He doesn't have a grave. You can't go there to find out where Moses, of all people, died. But anyway, that's where they were in that same general area near Moses' unmarked grave. This area is also where Elijah will end his earthly life. So Elijah finally speaks about his departure in verse 9. He says, ask what you want me to do for you before I'm taken away from you. Now this is a bit of a test for Elisha to see if he understands and accepts the role that he's been set apart for. And Elijah responds to the test well. He says, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Now to the Western reader, this might sound like, hey, Elijah, you've been great. But I want to be twice as great as you are. Now, that would be a really weird and fundamentally uncool thing to say right at the end of Elijah's life. So that's not what he's saying. 
If you read it in the ancient Near East, it sounds like, I want to be your son and your heir. He's saying, I want to follow you. I want to be like you. I want to follow in your footsteps. This is not one upsmanship. This is respect. So Elijah, perhaps grumpy, it seems maybe evasive, says, you have asked for a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. So when you're reading that, it's kind of like, what is that? Why are you telling riddles uh, at the end of your life? But what Elijah's doing is he's taking the focus off himself. And he's putting it onto God. Elijah knows that he's going to be gone. It doesn't, Elijah can't confer his ministry onto Elisha. That's only something that God can do. He wants Elisha, his protege, to be looking not to him, but to Yahweh as he continues on beyond that time. So we are called to empower those who come after us, to train them, to impart God's word to them. But fundamentally, ultimately, only God can call people to himself. Only God can change hearts. Only God can call the next generation to follow him. Only God can give us what we need spiritually. Our role is to recognize someone and what God is doing in their life and to do all we can to build them up and equip them according to how God has made them. But ultimately, for that person, the next generation to follow the Lord, it's going to be up to the Lord to confer that onto them. So, also, Elijah, this is his final statement that he ever makes. His final words, Elijah's final words are, don't look to me, look to God. This is faithfulness to the end. This is Elijah, what he's learned is this. The way to live your life is to submit your life to God and his plans. He has, he has consented his will to the Lord. This is godliness. This is wisdom. This is holiness. This sounds like the end of Ecclesiastes. After I've explored all these things, we're going to actually study Ecclesiastes this summer. But fundamentally at the end, he says, after I've, I've explored all these things, here's what it's all about. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's it. This is wisdom. Follow the Lord. Trust in his sovereignty. Submit yourself to the authority of God. And this is also helpful as you uh, get older, as we all will one day get older and approach death, is that the next generation does not need you to control them. The next generation needs you to trust them, to do what you can to lead them, to raise them up, but to trust in the sovereignty of God and their generation to continue to lead them. The Lord is good. I mean, we have people that we've been building into. You may have... Uh, People you've been mentoring in the faith, you have, may have children, maybe the Lord's giving you children. This is a, a good template for us. We are called to lead them and to love them and to build into them, but only God can make disciples of the next generation. But God is also far more interested in us than you are. He is raising up disciples. So now we get to the chariot part of the story, the fiery chariots. What is going on with the miracle of the chariots of fire and Elijah. Why does God choose this to be the way that things go for Elijah in this moment in time? 
Well, a couple of reasons. One is the God versus Baal theme is coming back here. So maybe you forgot about Baal, and that's good. He's not very important. But in this day and time, Baal was the, uh, the, the rain king. He was the, the storm god. He was the god who supposedly, in that, that cultural moment, was providing for the people, providing um, all for the agricultural industry, which was the, the breadbasket of the empire. Baal styled himself as this great king of the clouds. And so God, in Elijah's final moment, his final act is saying, no, that's me. I am the one who rides on the clouds. Actually, this takes us again back to Moses in the burning bush moment in Exodus 3, where God first reveals his name to Israel. He says, I am that I am, which we say Yahweh is how we encapsulate that, that meaning. I am that what I am, or I am, God says, that's my name. That's more than about God's self-existence. What that means is that he says, I am the God, Richard Pratt translates it as, I am the God who calls the heavenly armies to be. I am the God who calls the heavenly armies to be. And so in this moment, as, as God takes Elijah, his warrior, to heaven on a fiery chariot, God is saying, I am the Lord who rides on the clouds. I am the Lord who controls all things. So God is making one last uh, statement against Baal and Elijah's ministry. This is also, second of all, what's going on here. It's the ascent of a spiritual warrior. Elijah has been faithful in a faithless age. Now, Elijah... If you've been here with us, he's been faithful, but he's also had moments of great weakness, of losing heart, of being depressed. Potentially, in 1 Kings 19, he may have been suicidal at one point in his life. This man is not flawless, but he has been faithful. He has been faithful to continue to follow the Lord because the Lord has been faithful to him and his ministry. And ultimately, who is the one who provides the fiery chair, right? It's God. God is the one who's doing this. This is about God carrying Elijah on his chariot. And then finally, what's going on here is the fiery chariot scene is forward-looking. It's forward-looking. Do you see that? That as the chariot rides forward and Elijah is no more, he's in heaven, he's no more on the earth. What's the message? Hey, Elisha, you're up. It's you. He's gone. You are the one now to carry things forward. Realize this, that when Elijah is taken away, we cannot, like Moses, we also, like Moses, cannot mark his grave. We don't know where, Elijah's not buried anywhere. Christianity is different. We don't build grottos to our leaders, to the ones who have come before us. Yes, we honor them. We remember them. But we don't go and we don't worship them. We're not anchored in the past. We are looking forward to the future. The fact that Moses and Elijah and so many of the heroes who have gone before don't have graves. We can't go build mausoleums to them and go and, and do anything like that. It's because Christianity is fundamentally a forward-moving religion. It's from generation to generation. The Old Testament is moving us forward to Christ. These men are prophets, but they're pointing us ahead to the final prophet, Jesus. 
Even the New Testament, though it looks back to what Christ has done, of course, the New Testament is also forward-looking. We're looking forward to what is to come. We're looking forward to the return of Christ, to the one Christ who will return on the clouds. It says in Revelation 19, he'll return much like Elijah left here in 2 Kings 2. He'll return as a warrior. He will come to, to do justice in the world. He'll come to set the world to rights, to make all things new. That is what we look forward to. Christianity is a forward-moving faith. In our own American Christian history, we have a few names that have uh, served us well. A few people that have served us very well. Famous people like Jonathan Edwards, Harriet Tubman, these are all believers, Frederick Douglass, Jim Elliott, Dr. Martin Luther King, Billy Graham, to name a few. There are many others that we don't know their names. Black, white, Latino, Asian. There are many others that you've had in your life that, that have been heroes for you because they've, they've helped strengthen you in your faith. But many have followed Christ faithfully and we don't even know their names. Do you realize that probably in three generations from now, no one will remember you. Maybe they'll remember you by your name on a family tree somewhere. Four generations, probably not. The chances are that none of you will have any exhibits built in your honor at museums. Uh, people probably won't visit your grave in a hundred years. And yet we can make so much of ourselves. We can live so self-focused in our lives when really what is the meaning, what is the point, what is the purpose of your life? Your answer doesn't have to be Butcher Dow, or I don't know. It is to extend the gospel around you into the next generation. John Calvin gave very specific instructions for his funeral. Nothing was to distinguish it from an ordinary citizen's funeral. He said, I want a plain white shroud, a simple pine coffin, and no fuss. And that's what the people of Geneva did. Even though thousands went to his funeral, after a couple of weeks, certainly a couple of months later, no one knew where he was buried. To this day, we don't know where he was buried. Why? Because John Calvin, in his death, was living out his theology. He was saying, I'm not important. God is important. You know, he's the guy that's all about the sovereignty of God and salvation. He's like, don't look to me. Don't look to me and, and my legacy. Look to Christ. Look to what Christ has done. So how should you live now if people in three generations can barely remember you? What would, what would make your life worth it? What should you spend your time doing? Well, first of all, don't make your life about you. Make it about Jesus. The more you point yourself, people to yourself and not to Christ, the more you're wasting everybody's time. You're not going to be around, but Jesus will be. And that means that you should guard your faith at all costs. It is priceless. Your faith in Jesus Christ is absolutely so valuable that you should do anything to protect it. Which means you should try to kill all of those selfish desires that can ruin your faith. All of those things that can distract you or can become uh, a weight for you, become something that can make, you, make people look to you and, and not respect you. Try your best. Try everything you can to do away with those in your life. I would encourage you also to love your biological children and your spiritual children 
well. Don't just tolerate them. Don't just wait until you can be an empty nester and you're like, finally we can go on date nights without paying for chocolate. I mean, sometimes life is so hard that we can just kind of do that. Um, your children and your spiritual children are so worthy of your investment. So try to do everything you can to give the gospel to them. Now, recognize, though, as we talked about earlier, that God is not a machine. There is no algorithm that you can use to, if you do X, Y, Z, and all of this, that for sure, in the end, your children will be a certain way or your spiritual children will be a certain way. No, that's just not the way that it works. But the reality is that as you invest your life in the next generation, the Lord will make sure in every generation that his word continues on. He will make sure, he'll absolutely ensure that it happens. And his love is not just for you, but as scripture was read last week, it's also for future generations. And then finally, we should move forward, not just for the next generation, but we should move forward with the spoken word of God. With the spoken word of God. So after uh, Elijah goes to heaven in a fiery chariot, interestingly, his cloak falls from the sky, and then Elisha picks up the cloak, and this has meaning uh, for us because this confers the priesthood onto Elisha. And then he goes back to the Jordan, and he takes the cloak, rolls it up, and he strikes the water just like Elijah did, but different because he's walking in another direction. So what do we learn here is this. First of all, where is the Lord now? Where is the Lord? Well, he is with Elisha. He is with Elisha just like he was with Elijah. And the parting of the water shows us that God's power is with him. And then finally, notice, though, that he is walking in some ways in the same way as his mentor, but in other ways he is walking in a different way from his mentor. What we learn here is that when there's a transition of leadership, that there should be some things that are very similar in, in the next leader. Fundamentally, the word of God and the faithfulness to God's word should be very prominent in every Christian leader's ministry. But the way Elisha is going to lead is not going to be the same as Elijah. There are going to be differences. And so for us, as we have a transition in leadership in our lives all, all the time, it's just happening. We need to make sure, what is holding this thing together? Is it the style of the leader? Is it, is it the, per, the type of decision-making that he does? Is it the way he preaches or, or whatever it is? Or is it God's word that holds everything together? It would have been easy for people to question Elisha because he's slightly different than Elijah. But he's carrying on the same ministry of the gospel, just in a different way. We need to recognize that whatever happens to our pastors and elders and leaders, we need to realize that they will either die or they will fail in their leadership. You realize that? They will be faithful and in the end they will die or they will be unfaithful and flame out. That's what happens. That's what happens. What does that show us? The ministry of the gospel is not about a pastor or a, a nonprofit leader or a speaker. It's about God. God is the only one who is eternal. His word is the only bedrock of our faith. You cannot put your hope in any Christian leader. Only the Lord carries us through. We need to recognize that God is still at work in our world and in his church 
no matter how broken his church may be. The promise of the gospel is that in every generation, there will be men and women who are faithful to him, faithful to preach his word. We can count on it. Even if you have been greatly disillusioned by things that have happened in the church, and there are reasons to be concerned at various points in time, absolutely. You need to recognize that God has not left and will never leave his church without a witness in any generation. So what this means is that in this cultural moment, you do not need to set your sights too low. Do not set your sights too low. If you're struggling with Disillusionment about the church. Um, if you're, if you're, it could be our church. It could be any church. If you're, uh, what's being called right now, deconstructing your faith. If you're, you're caught up in a moment of pessimism. You need to recognize that we have a God who still speaks. God still speaks. God is still at work in His church. You cannot let pessimism or deconstruction reign supreme if God still speaks. Do not set your sights too low. What geopolitical realities have gotten you so concerned, and there are some to be very concerned about, that you're tempted to grow so depressed and so discouraged that you're, you're jettisoning your faith, or you're setting your sights so low about what God can do. The Lord is the Lord. Our God is the Lord. You read Psalm 2. He is the Lord over all of these troubling Geopolitical realities like in Ukraine and Russia, China and Taiwan, Haiti, Turkey, Syria, many of the things Adam prayed for. Do not set your sights too low. You can still keep on praying for those people in your life who you desperately want to see come to know the Lord. Maybe it's your children, maybe it's your parents. But as we seek to extend the gospel to the next generation, don't set your sights too low. If God still speaks, and he promises that he is a forward-moving God who always has his word present in every generation. Do not set your sights too low. Keep lifting up those hurts that you've experienced, perhaps in the church, perhaps in your family, perhaps in other ways. Do not set your sights too low. The Lord is a healer. He is a healing God. His gospel is forward-moving. Do not give up on healing in those areas of your life. In our moments of greatest fear and pain, God still speaks. How do we know that? How do we know that God speaks to us in our moments of suffering and in our affliction? Did not Jesus, when he died on the cross, did he not in that moment speak? What did he say? What did Jesus say to us on the cross? He said this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. He says to us what it says in Romans 8.31, If God did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, will he not, along with him, graciously give us all things? Will he not? What did God say to us at the cross? He said, For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God for you and me in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if Jesus spoke to us in his death, what does Jesus say to us in his resurrection? He's saying this, not only have I forgiven you of your sins, but I have been raised for you so that you will have, you do have eternal life in me. 
so that as you approach death, you do not need to fear in any way. You know, the next time in the scriptures that someone rises up to heaven on the clouds is who? It's Jesus. And as he ascends into heaven, right before that, what does he say to his disciples? This takes us back to Moses giving way to Joshua. This takes us back to Elijah giving way to Elisha. This takes us back to Jesus then doing what? Giving us the Great Commission. What does he say to us there? He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. For what? For I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus does what? He invites us into his building project. He leaves us with a great and clear purpose. I want you to do what? I want you to make disciples of the nations. Jesus gives way to who? He gives way to the disciples. And who do they give way to? They give way to us. We are the generation, this generation. And we are called to pass our faith on to the next generation. It is our job description. It is your purpose. It is what you were created to do. It is why Jesus has called us to himself. So do not set your sights too low. We have a warrior king who is coming, and he is going to renew the world. He is going to take care of all of the injustice. He's going to make all of the wrongs right. He's going to make all of the crooked places straight. He's going to make all of the broken places smooth. He's going to bring redemption. He already has in his first coming, and he will come again. And so do not set your sights too low about why you're here and about what this is all about. Certainly do not allow yourself to be a greatly pessimistic Christian. There are times for pessimism. But if your life is characterized by it, then you are not living in line with the gospel. Because God is a forward-moving God. And there is hope for you. There is hope for the next generation. Do not set your sights too low. We thank you for your word. Lord, I just confess that so often I live my life distracted by various things that are going on. It could be sickness. It could be a hard conversation. It could be something going on with my own family or in this church. Father, I and we are guilty of, set, of setting our sights often too low. Lord, help us to remember why we exist, what our purpose is. Help us to not give the answer when someone asks what your life is about to say, I don't know. But the fact is, we do know. We've been called by you to a great and glorious calling. Lord, I pray for every person here, God, would you help us to be aligned with you and your purposes. Lord, you're a forward-moving God from generation to generation. Let us not get stuck in the past. Let us be people who move forward, who take the step forward to walk with you and trust you in this day and this time that we can pass our faith on to the next generation. We pray in Jesus' name.